0: A word of caution. This episode contains descriptions of a school shooting on a college campus. Please take care when listening. Last week, a graduate student entered an academic lab on the University of North Carolina campus, shooting and killing a respected professor, resulting in an hours-long lockdown of the campus. The student was arrested a short time later and the motive for the murder has not yet been revealed. In 1995, a law student at the same university headed towards campus with an assault rifle, shooting at random passersby and murdering two innocent people. His actions sparked a nationwide debate on what type of punishment a person with mental illness should receive for such crimes. Also, this week we have an update on the missing persons case of Alicia Watts, who went missing in North Carolina this past summer. There is much to love about North and South Carolina, but the two states have also had their fair share of violent and senseless crimes over the years. From murders on the Blue Ridge Parkway, in the heart of big cities or sleepy college towns, and along the coastal waters, some of these stories may be new to you. Some may have happened in your town. Some may involve people that are still missing to this day but all will leave you remembering to always be vigilant about the people you meet and the places you go. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Episode 63, the 1995 shooting on the University of North Carolina campus. On August 28th, I was scrolling through my Facebook feed when I saw the first news alert that the campus of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill had gone on lockdown around 1 p.m. I froze. I have friends with children who are students at that university, and my own kids have friends there as well. Plus, as the parent of a student on a large university campus, I know the fear of worrying about her safety at all times. The students were only in their second week of school. I felt like I was holding my breath as I checked for updates. I read there was an armed person on the campus and that shots had been fired. I saw messages from parents whose children were holed up in classrooms, terrified of what was going on outside. I saw a report that 10 people had been injured, and there was at least one fatality, and my heart sank. Hours passed. Within a few hours, the lockdown had been lifted, and a person was in custody. Reports clarified there was only one person dead, not 10. Three hours after shooting, Zhu at the Caldo Labs on campus. 34-year-old Tai Lei Chi was arrested at a residential neighborhood near campus and charged with first-degree murder and having a gun on educational property. The victim was the father of two young daughters and an associate professor in the Department of Applied Physical Sciences who began working for the university in 2019. The AP News reported that he was a respected approachable professor and research advisor in the department. He ran a lab in the Department of Applied Physical Sciences with two undergraduate students, one research assistant, and three PhD students, including Tai Le Chi. While there was only one fatality, it was one fatality too many. The students there are still processing and possibly are scarred for the rest of their lives over what they experienced that day. When I first heard the news, My mind flashed back to the day in January of 1995 when I learned of another shooter near the UNC campus. In 1995, I was a college student who had friends there. I worked at the campus newspaper office at UNC Asheville. And remember, this was a time where most of our breaking news came in the form of the television stations. There were no smartphones or social media apps to search for news updates. All I knew at the time was that a gunman near campus had begun shooting And innocent bystanders had been killed. Here's some background on what happened on January 26, 1995. Around 2 p.m. that day, 26-year-old UNC law student Wendell Williamson walked down Henderson Street near campus carrying a semi-automatic rifle and wearing a camouflage jacket. He opened fire, killing 42-year-old restaurant worker Ralph Walker near his apartment. He continued walking, shooting at bystanders. 20-year-old UNC student and lacrosse player Kevin Reichert was riding his bicycle in front of a sorority house, and he was killed instantly when Williamson shot him. Williamson then shot at police officer Dimitri Stevenson, who was driving by in her police cruiser. Injured, she crashed her patrol car into a curb. Police officers on Henderson Street began returning fire at Williamson. Around this time, the manager of a local bar, former Marine and UNC graduate, Bill Leon, rushed Williamson from behind and tackled him to the ground. Leon later realized he had been shot in the shoulder, and Williamson had been shot in both legs by police during the altercation. All in all, Williamson had fired at least 10 to 15 rounds from his weapon. At the hospital, Williamson told an agent with the State Bureau of Investigation that he had planned the shooting spree, And expected it to end in his own death. He believed unknown and malevolent forces were using telepathy to torture him. He felt he had to kill someone as a way of defending himself. He pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. In an article that ran in the Asheville Citizen Times on January 28, 1995, a UNC classmate of Williamson's said acquaintances could tell Williamson was struggling with mental health issues. He would appear to be talking and laughing to himself in bars, stared at women and made them feel uncomfortable, and told one class he had telepathic powers. But this is not the person Williamson's administrators, teachers, and classmates remember from his younger years. Wendell Williamson grew up in Clyde, located in the mountains of western North Carolina. In high school, he attended the Asheville School, where he was a National Merit Scholarship semifinalist who was in the top 20% of his class. He served as the president of the student council, worked on the school newspaper, and also played varsity football and swam competitively. He lived on campus with the other boarding students at the school and had no disciplinary infractions while he was there, the former headmaster told the newspaper. He went on to attend the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and graduated with honors as an English major, where he was also on the Dean's list. A history buff, he was fascinated with World War II, according to his parents. He traveled for a few years after receiving his bachelor's degree before returning to UNC and attending the law school for three years up until the shooting. A friend told the Asheville Citizen Times that Williamson had begun having psychological problems in his early 20s and was taking medication that didn't seem to be helping. At the trial, Williamson's ex-girlfriend, that he dated between 1992 and 1993, testified that he had told her about voices in his head. She said he focused on two images to drive those voices out, a dragon and a rifle. During a visit to the Dollywood Amusement Park in Tennessee, he grew angry with her when she wouldn't stare at a live eagle display with him. He told her he felt the display had some sort of mental activity. In November of 1995, a jury found Wendell Williamson, who was diagnosed with schizophrenia, not guilty by reason of insanity. One of the jurors told the News & Observer the following, It's a very tough decision for the jurors because we do not like having to say the words not guilty because, of course, he committed the crime. But it's the way the law is written and the only thing we could do. After the verdict, Williamson was involuntarily committed to Dorothea Dix Hospital in Raleigh, where he was to remain until he could demonstrate that he no longer had mental illness or was no longer a danger to others. For the families of Williamson's victims, things only got worse. A few years after his trial, Williamson sued Dr. Myron Lipson for malpractice, claiming the psychiatrist should have foreseen that Williamson was likely to become dangerous, misdiagnosed his condition, and should have taken more forceful steps to ensure Williamson was aware of the perils of stopping his prescribed medication. In the spring of 1994, Dr. Lipson, who had been treating Williamson through the UNC health system, told the law student he was retiring. He advised him to make an appointment with his replacement and prescribed a 30-day supply of antipsychotic medication used to treat paranoid schizophrenia. Williamson did not take Dr. Lipson's advice. Instead, as Williamson said in a segment that ran on 60 Minutes, he took up target practice. Almost nine months later, he went on his shooting rampage near the campus. He told 60 Minutes, I practiced pretty much walking up to trees and shooting them dead because I thought that's what I'd be doing to people. Dr. Lipson told the news producers that doctors cannot monitor their patients at home. He said... Even if I give somebody a prescription, am I bound to go to their apartments or their homes and ask them to present the bottles and show me that they've been taking the medication?" A jury decided in Williamson's favor, awarding him $500,000. In November of 1998, David R. Work, who was then serving as the executive director of the North Carolina Board of Pharmacy and an adjunct professor of pharmacy law at UNC School of Pharmacy, wrote a guest column for the Chapel Hill Herald. He wrote, in part, All agree that Wendell Williamson was the perpetrator, killing two unsuspecting and innocent citizens, yet he was found not responsible for these acts. All also agree that Lipson was the only person among the litigants in the courtroom to help, perhaps imperfectly, Williamson with his mental illness. The not-guilty Williamson was sent to indefinite confinement while the helping Lipson had a $500,000 judgment as an epitaph to his medical practice. It's obvious that something is not right here. There is an edgy feeling in the healthcare community about legal proceedings as well as lawyers, and cases like the Williamson one matter further aggravate that emotion. Work pointed out that prior to the 1960s, people diagnosed with schizophrenia were likely to have been institutionalized indefinitely in places like Dorothea Dix Hospital, whether they committed crimes or not. A movement in the 1960s declared these types of incarcerations violated citizens' rights, and the population of mental health institutions decreased by almost 50%. By the 1990s, fewer than 10% of the state's mental patients were in state hospitals, while more than 90% were in the community including Wendell Williamson. Work also said, as a direct result of my job activities, I have received the irrational, intense, and corrosive attention of a person diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. He created havoc in my office, threatened me and my family, physically attacked others, producing fractures, sutures, and time in central prison. It is clear to me that psychiatric physicians, nurses, and social workers who toil in mental health deserve our admiration, not our litigation. The University of North Carolina, which would have been responsible for paying the $500,000 damage award since Libsyn had been a University employee, filed an appeal of the verdict. The appeal was supported by a brief written by the North Carolina Psychiatric Association, in which it emphasized the danger to seriously ill patients and threats to psychiatric care in general that would likely result if the judgment was allowed to stand and psychiatrists became more selective in the patients they agreed to treat. In December of 2000, the Court of Appeals in North Carolina unanimously agreed with the arguments made by the university and the NCPA and ordered the trial court judge to enter a verdict in favor of Lipson. The court ruled that the alleged negligence was not the proximate cause of the plaintiff Williamson's injuries. No action the psychiatrist took or did not take as part of his treatment of Williamson contributed directly to the murderous rampage that landed Williamson in court and then a psychiatric hospital. After his initial evaluation at Dorothea Dix Hospital in Raleigh, Wendell Williamson was then transferred to Broughton Hospital in Morganton, North Carolina. In 1998, he was transferred back to Dorothea Dix after it was discovered he had a drinking problem. In 2001, he published a book through the Mental Health Communication Network titled, Nightmare, a Schizophrenia Narrative, angering the families of Ralph Walker and Kevin Reichert. According to news station WRAL, a doctor testified in 2002 that Williamson was a model patient He received up to an hour of supervised time every day. In August of 2006, he disappeared from the hospital for 12 hours before calling hospital officials the next day from a boating area at Lake Wheeler located about six miles from the hospital. He was picked up and returned to the facility without incident. From what I can tell now, Wendell Williamson is now able to spend up to 12 hours off campus of the hospital unsupervised with family members with no notification to victims, families, or the community. Before we continue, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Summer, and now fall, is an important time to focus on protecting the health of your skin. You've heard me talk about my favorite products from Skin X Erin before, but here's a reminder. The pre-cleanse gently removes dirt, impurities, and even waterproof makeup without tugging, all without stripping or drying out your skin. In addition to keeping your skin clear, it also helps your skin feel firmer and reduces the signs of aging. It doubles as a smooth and silky shaving balm should you get in a pinch. Your legs will thank you. The Hydrating Beauty Oil is a powerful and effective skin hydrator that never leaves your skin feeling greasy. The Signature Squalane Oil is known for its anti-inflammatory and anti-aging properties. It's perfect for treating skin conditions like acne and eczema and reducing the appearance of wrinkles. Could the ends of your hair use a little love? Simply apply a few drops to your fingertips and massage into your hair for a little pick-me-up. The Perfecting Night Oil is loaded with vitamins E and A and is rich with antioxidants and omegas that nourish skin, replenish elasticity, and reduce stretch marks. A few drops a day leave skin smoother, more vibrant, and youthful. You can also mix it in with your favorite concealer to make a protective but lightweight tinted moisturizer for your face. Want to try out the products for yourself? Go to shopxerrin.com and use the code missingcarolinas 10 for a 10% discount on your order. Next, I'd like to talk about WOW Women on Writing. Are you looking to learn a new skill or add a new income stream to your career? I highly recommend looking into the classes offered at WOW Women on Writing. I recently taught a webinar on podcasting and next week I'll be helping moderate a different webinar titled an insider's look at launching as a freelance editor with instructor, Melanie faith. During this one hour webinar offered through zoom on September 15th, you will learn a checklist of what you need to start up as a freelance editor, how to find your niche, one editor's route to freelancing, finding your sweet spot communication style, locating freelance clients, establishing and maintaining good rapport with clients and scheduling and juggling multiple projects and time management tips. Instructor Melanie Faith holds an MFA from Queens University of Charlotte, North Carolina. Her writing has been nominated three times for the Pushcart Prize. Her full-length historical poetry collection set in the 1918 flu epidemic, This Passing Fever, was published by Future Cycle Press. Vine Leaves Press has published six of her writing craft books about such diverse topics as flash fiction, poetry, photography, teaching online, and writing a research book. Best of all, the cost for this webinar is only $39, which includes a 45-minute webinar and a 15-minute Q&A with your instructor, handouts with tips, and recommended resources and books for editorial skills. Reserve your spot today at wowwomenonwriting.com and click on the classroom tab. I'll also post a link in the show notes. And now, let's get back to the show. According to an article that ran on NPR last week titled, Can We Make College Campuses Safer? Expert Advice After Recent Shootings, attacks on college campuses are relatively rare. I will say as a parent, it doesn't feel that way. But the article went on to say that these shootings on college campuses are not centrally tracked and are difficult to define. In February of this year, a gunman killed three people and injured five others at Michigan State University. At that time, 98 people had been killed in 12 mass shootings at U.S. colleges since 1966, according to research from the Violence Project and Best Colleges. 75 percent of those took place within the last 16 years. Another 94 people were killed in at least 308 instances of gunfire, including individual attacks, legal intervention, and self-harm on college campuses between 2013 and 2022, according to Campus Safety Magazine. The deadliest mass shooting on a university campus occurred at Virginia Tech in 2007, when a former student killed 32 people and injured 24. The Virginia Tech shooting is what transformed the emergency preparedness industry as a whole, said campus safety. Schools, state governments, and federal agencies had to reshape their policies and protocols to improve campus safety and emergency responses. Tightening up protocols still doesn't make handling the emotional response to a shooting any easier. For that, I searched for some tips online. The American Counseling Association had this to say. Although people are resilient and often bounce back after difficult times, these events nearly always interrupt our sense of order and safety. The impact often extends to individuals who live far outside of the affected area with no personal connections to the event. This is especially true when the event is human caused with the intent of harming others. The ACA provided the following tips. Attend to self-care. Monitor all of your physical health needs. Be sure to eat, sleep, exercise, and if possible, maintain a normal daily routine. Pay attention to your emotional health. Remember that a wide range of feelings during these difficult times are common. Know that others are also experiencing emotional reactions and may need your time and patience to put their feelings and thoughts in order. Try to recognize when you or those around you may need extra support. It is not uncommon for individuals of all ages to experience stress reactions when exposed, even through media, to shootings or mass violence. Changes in eating and sleeping habits, energy level, and mood are signs of distress. Avoid overexposure to media. While it is important to stay informed, media portrayals of shootings and mass deaths have been known to cause acute distress and post-traumatic stress symptoms. Limit your exposure and take a break from news sources. Maintain contact with friends and family. These individuals can provide you with emotional support to help deal with difficult times. Focus on your strength base. Maintain practices that you have found to provide emotional relief. Remind yourself of people and events which are meaningful and comforting. Talk to others as needed. It is important to ask for help if you are having trouble recovering and everyday tasks seem difficult to manage. Visit counseling.org for more tips and resources. Now I'd like to bring an update to a recent missing persons case from the Charlotte area that unfortunately had a heartbreaking ending. 39 year old Alicia Watts went missing this past summer in mid-July. She lived in Moore County but frequently visited the Charlotte area as she was dating someone from here, a man named James Dunmore. Alicia was last seen driving away from her boyfriend's home on Pamela Lorraine Drive in Charlotte on July 16th. They were supposed to attend a comedy show together that weekend. News sources have reported her family said they did not end up going to the show at Bojangles Coliseum. Both Alicia's and James's cell phones pinged near his home in Charlotte On the morning of July 18th. A few hours later, authorities found her black 2023 Mercedes-Benz in a DMV parking lot in Anson County. Inside, they found James Dunmore, unresponsive but alive after what appeared to be a suicide attempt. He was then hospitalized and refused to speak to officers about Alicia's whereabouts. Police found spent shell casing from a 9mm gun outside his home in Charlotte. Police searched Alicia's home in Foxfire on July 19th because her father was worried about her dog being there alone when he reported his daughter missing. Alicia was not located in the home. WRAL News out of Raleigh reported that James Dunmore had a domestic violence order served against him in Durham County just two months before Alicia went missing. A woman who had been dating James alleged a litany of abuses had occurred prior to March of 2023. The victim reported having been stalked, attacked, punched, choked, and in one instance, he took her against her will from Charlotte to South Carolina. James also had prior convictions from the state of Virginia for assault, battery, and kidnapping from 2003. He spent five years in prison on that charge and was sentenced to 15 years of probation. James Dunmore remained a person of interest until August 25th When the body of a woman was discovered in the town of Norman, located along the Richmond-Montgomery County line on Interstate 74 in North Carolina. James was arrested at his home later that day and charged with murder. While the body discovered behind a local cemetery has yet to be officially identified, authorities believe it to be Alicia Watts. The cemetery was about 20 minutes away from Alicia's home in Foxfire. Her family believes digital evidence and cell phone pings likely led investigators to that area. This brings us to the conclusion of this episode of Missing in the Carolinas. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd also like to support the show in a small way, you can buy me a coffee over at buymeacoffee.com. Renee Robertson. Thank you so much for those who have already supported me through this platform. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. Do you know of a missing person's case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, WoW Women on Writing, and the great programs and writing contests they have there at WoW. WomenOnWriting.com. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing provided by Daniel Robertson. Thanks so much for listening.